Standing at the Edge of the Podcast. I'm Casey Stratton. I'm here for episode 10, and it's just you and me again this week. I thought I was going to have a bunch of guests on the show, but it's proven to be more difficult than I thought. People are busy I'm trying to deal with the technology piece, so I don't know how that's going to pan out, but we'll figure it out. Anyway, this week I'm going to do something fun, actually. I'm going to take it back to the namesake, and I'm going to talk about Standing at the Edge and the process of leading up to that record and how it all came together. Uh, I did on Facebook go through song by song a a little while ago, but this will be a little bit different. It's going to be a little more big picture. Um, Some of you might have seen the documentary about that time called Record Deal. Um, I'm not even going to necessarily touch on a lot of that either. Um, If you want to see it, it's on YouTube. Uh, You just want to Google or search on YouTube Record Deal, Casey Stratton, it should come up. Um, It's really interesting, actually. Um, Well, why don't we start with that? Let's dig in. I was living in Chicago in 2001, and my friend from New York, Fred Anguera, came to see me, and he had an idea. I remember we were sitting in a diner talking, and he said, I have an idea. I want to make a documentary. I was about to start my first independent record um, that I was actually going to release. It was going to be called The Winter Children. Uh, And I was getting ready for that to happen. And I had made records previous to that, but they weren't, I wasn't able to release them because this is back before digital stuff was really a thing. iTunes didn't have a store yet. Uh, I didn't have the capacity or the funds to make an internet store. Some of you might remember I had a digital store on my website. It was very archaic, but at the time it was like cutting edge technology. Now I'm like, oh my gosh, it was a lot to maintain uh, and deal with. But anyway, I was going to be making this independent record. And I did end up releasing a a sort of re-recorded version of that. I put some new vocals and new piano parts on some of the songs in 2009. But originally that record I had written from 1998 to 2002. Um, So a lot of songs that ended up on Standing at the Edge came from that. The Dead Sea is from that record. Blood is from that record. Ocean. Um... Is that or anything else? Probably. Anyway, lots of songs came from that time period, especially, but especially that particular album. So I was getting ready to put that together, and my friend wanted to document it because, you know, it being an independent musician was still kind of a thing lots of people weren't doing. This was kind of the tail end of feeling like the only way to really make it in the business was to be signed to either an independent record label or a big corporate one. And we all know how this ends. Well, maybe you don't, but we're going to get there. So we, my friend that I worked with, Margaret Byrne, I worked with her at California Pizza Kitchen in um, the Water Tower Place in Miracle Mile, Magnificent Mile in Chicago. And uh, she was a filmmaker. She had been studying at the University of uh, Illinois, I think, or the University of Chicago, one of the two. Uh, UIC, so University of Illinois at Chicago. I got it. I got it. So... She and I were were talking, and so we had her start kind of filming me in the process of what was happening. But then things shifted very quickly. So in 2002, it was very interesting. My career had really stalled when I left Los Angeles. I left Los Angeles because my career was kind of falling apart. I learned really early on, because this was when I was, let's see, 1999. So I was 22. I wasn't quite 23 yet. 
and I was signed to a, a publisher, a big publisher actually, called Rondor Music International. Now it's owned by Universal Music Publishing, so whenever I have to deal with those songs, I have to deal with Universal Music. So I was signed to this publisher, and they promised me they were going to renew my contract after the first 18 months was up, but then they didn't. So I found out I was dropped, like, at the last second. Like, I think what actually happened was that I was waiting for my monthly check to come, and it never did. And so I found out that they had not extended my contract, and I had no idea that that also meant that I would not have an income anymore, and I no one gave me any heads up, which, yeah, great, the music industry. So all of a sudden, people started dropping me that worked with me, the phone stopped ringing, people stopped returning my calls, and I realized that I had spent four years building my career up, and in a matter of like two to four weeks, it was basically over. So I decided to get out of the relationship I was in, I decided I had to get out of LA. So I moved to Chicago, and for a couple years, I wrote a lot of music, but I didn't really perform or tell anyone. I think I might have discussed this in an earlier episode. Anyway, I'm in Chicago. I find um, that I am in between jobs again, so I'm pounding the pavement. I am all over for days, just like on the bus. I remember this, just going to different restaurants and asking if they were hiring. And one day on the bus on the way home, I was like, oh, I should check my email. I haven't checked it in a long time. Because I have different email accounts. I think still I have like 12 or something. But I hadn't checked my account for like my professional stuff in a long time because there was nothing ever in there but junk. So I get back to where I'm staying and I have this email from a, a man, a music manager in Los Angeles. And she said, hey... Uh, I used your song in a film that I directed, and I am wondering if you're interested in management because I really love your music. I also manage an artist named Sophie B. Hawkins. Some of you may know her from her hits, Damn Wish I Was Your Lover and As I Lay Me Down. So I was like, whoa, like nobody has sought me out in years. And it's interesting because there were all these rumors in Los Angeles that I had become a heroin addict and died, that I had left Los Angeles to work with Prince. Like there were all these rumors and those rumors went everywhere. Even the town I was from in Michigan, people thought I was working with Prince. I don't know. I just don't know how that happened. But for a long time, a lot of people in the industry in Los Angeles thought I had died. Not true, but that's what everyone thought. So interesting. So um, there was also this weird rumor going around that I was like super overweight with long hair, like I looked like meatloaf and that, oh, these sensitive songs are coming from, I mean, it, it doesn't matter what I look like, but I just think it's interesting how rumors get started. So anyway, I, I reached out to her and we did end up entering into a management deal and suddenly I was flying to New York and Los Angeles and having meetings with all these record companies. I was already planning to move to New York in June of 2002. This all happened in the spring, like April of 2002. So suddenly I have this manager and she I kept telling her I want to be with an independent label and she's like, no, you got to go with a major label. That's where the money is. Of course, I mean, people want to make money. Um, and I get that, but I am really um, protective of my work and my artistic integrity. I am. So I was like, I am not just going to go with any label. Like, I'm just, I'm not the kind of person that just wants a check. Like, it's it's got to be the right relationship. So as things progressed, I just, I wanted to negotiate more on the creative side, less financial. So I met with all these labels, and as anybody in any industry knows, like writing or acting or music, dance, all the performing arts, you get rejected a lot. 
a lot, a lot, a lot. So that was fine. There were some labels that were better than others. I just remember having, I remember being in New York at one point when I had just moved there and I had like a solid week full of just like singing for record companies, meeting with record companies. Because usually you come in, they bring you to some sort of like studio space and there's a piano and you sing live for them. And then you talk and they ask you, what do you think your target market is? And I would always want to be like, shouldn't that be something you're telling me? You're the one with the marketing department. Anyway, they just, they're testing you to see how savvy you are. And there's just a lot that goes into it uh, behind the scenes. So I met with all these labels. We couldn't film any of that, of course. We had a lot of footage in the documentary of me in between meetings or getting excited about things. But what ended up happening is I got offered a, a deal from RCA Records uh, in Los Angeles, actually. And then I um, was already getting ready to negotiate that what's called a short form. So you, you negotiate a shorter version of your contract that has all the big stuff in it and then over time you negotiate the longer version which takes a long time so I got a call saying hey will you come in and sing for Sony Classical and I was like sure why not and I really it was so low stakes because I already had a deal on the table so I just kind of went in and just I don't know I, I didn't feel a lot of pressure at all so I played for them I believe like three or four songs we had a conversation they knew that I had the deal on the table already from RCA Records so within hours it was just a few hours later we got a call that Sony Classical was also offering me a deal so suddenly I had a bidding war it's ironic that Sony and RCA BMG merged later on. Uh, that is actually what ended up being the end of my success time with Sony because the merger caused a lot of problems. Anyway, I, uh, I had the bidding war. I ended up signing with Sony and not RCA, which kind of took a hit because the president of RCA like, and I really had a great rapport. So when we turned it down, he was not happy. So I ended up signing with Sony, and then that was in September we did the short form. September, I think, 6th of 2002. So it was interesting because I had wanted to live in New York my whole career, but I was afraid to live in New York because it's so expensive. So I moved to New York in June, and by September I have a major label record deal with Sony when I originally was moving there to become an independent artist and make The Winter Children. It was just very, very fast in retrospect for my life to change that quickly. It was also interesting because when I turned 25, I think I mentioned this earlier, yeah I did, that I had had such an issue with like my life not being where I wanted it and then I wasn't even 26 yet and I got signed. So you never know, I guess is the moral of the story. But back then, again, that was like the way to make it. And I mean, you know, I'm this kid from Michigan and I'm people my whole life are saying, you're, you, you know, stop it. You're never gonna get signed to some big company. And then I did. It was a huge deal. It, for me, it was the brass ring of the time. Like, I can't believe that I'm this kid from Michigan and now I'm signed to Sony Music International. I mean, that's a giant corporation. So I thought, this is it. And Sony Classical is like, you're going to be the next Nora Jones. We're going to be like, you're going to be the sweetheart of the label. We're going to put all of our weight behind you. You're our most important signing of the year. Especially because, again, they had gone through a bidding war to get me. And Variety actually did a piece because I was one of, I was in one of the top five record deals of that whole year as far as like financial. Uh, the way it worked out financially. So I signed to Sony for five albums. I talked about this in earlier episodes. You wait in between each album to find out if you're getting another one. So anyway, we I get signed and we start talking about what's this record going to look like. Um, I started meeting with producers. The first producer I met with was Kevin Killen. I had seen his name on like everything. He worked with U2 and Peter Gabriel, Kate Bush, Tori Amos. He produced Paula Cole's first album, Harbinger. He worked with Lorena McKennett. 
basically anybody I liked, I would have at some point see Kevin Killen's name on it. And he's a, an engineer and a producer. So I literally opened the phone book and there was his name. He lived in New York as well. I called him up, said, hey, Kevin Killen, my name is Casey Stratton. I just got signed to Sony Classical. This is maybe a month after I got signed. And I'm like, I would love to talk to you about potentially producing my album. So he came to my apartment. Uh, very, just really approachable, accessible guy. He's still one of my favorite people I've ever worked with in the business, if not my very favorite, maybe. So he's in my top five for sure. Uh, we're still friends to this day. Um, and I was just like blown away because again, I was this kid, this teenager in Michigan listening to my Peter Gabriel So album and listening to Kate Bush, The Sensual World and listening to Under the Pink, Tori Amos and Paula Cole Harbinger and seeing this guy's name on there. And I couldn't believe he was sitting in my apartment talking to me. Crazy. So I, that was one of the first times where I really felt like, oh, okay, when you're signed, you, you can do this kind of thing. And these are the kinds of things that a lot of artists, well, maybe more so now, but back then you didn't talk about anything like that because you had to keep this mystery. And there's like, of course, I mean, I was always famous or I was always, the, but I was excited about every little thing. I would jump up and down with excitement. I still like to show that excitement. I think in the social media age, more artists are willing to show when they're happy. Like I think about Tabitha Brown on, on uh, Instagram and TikTok and how she is really just openly showing her joy at it's quote unquote making it. Um, so I'm sitting with Kevin Killen. We have a great conversation. And then he says, yes, he will produce with me for the album. We were going to co-produce, which made me really excited as well because he was really being respectful of how much work I had done. I mean, I, I had made four records before Stand at the Edge. So I had lots of experience in studios and he was really willing to do the work with me as a team. So I go back to Sony Classical and I'm so excited and I tell them, hey, I got Kevin Killen. And then I get this like notification. I can't remember if it was, oh, my manager. So my manager calls me and says, hey, they're not going to let you produce with Kevin Killen because they think that you two would need more supervision. And I was like, what do they think we're going to draw on the wall with crayons? Like, what do you mean supervision? So I was really offended, not for me, but for Kevin, because then I had to call Kevin and tell him Sony doesn't think that you're good enough, basically. And I was just like, this is insane. This guy's resume, his credits, I, I can't believe they're trying to say that he can't produce this record. So I was really upset. So I say, hey, Kevin, will you engineer the record? He says, I don't think you can afford it, but if if they'll pay for me, I will do it, but I don't think they will, so don't press your luck. So life goes on. I make this list. Sony asks for a list of the top 10 people I want to work on the record with. So I have all these people on my list. Um, I had like Brian Eno on there and Trevor Horn and Ian Stanley and all these people. So uh, Patrick Leonard was on the list, but um, Sony thought that he would not be interested. So I sent him a bunch of records. I think I've talked about this before. And then I sent him three CDs worth of stuff. And then he did say, yep, I want you to come here and meet with me. So I flew to Los Angeles and then uh, met with him. And then we decided... Um, well, what happened was, what had happened was, I was in LA for a few days, so I met with him, but I stayed because he was having a party that weekend, and he wanted me to come to that. So I got to come to this party full of all these like 
big big names. Uh, Eric Idle from Monty Python was there. Um, Patrick's wife at the time was Olivia Dabo from The Wonder Years and Alias and Law and Order Criminal Intent. So a lot of her Alias co-stars were there. Jennifer Garner was there. Um, there, yeah, there were a bunch of people there. Uh, so that was fun. And you know, servers walking around with trays of glasses of wine, and I had a really good time. So Pat told me that night. I really, really think you have a lot to offer as an artist, and I and I want to make your record with you. So that was a big win because nobody thought it was going to happen. So then I go back to New York where I was living and find out, of course, Patrick Leonard does not want to come to New York because he has a family. So we, uh, the irony became that I was going to go back to Los Angeles that I had run away kicking and screaming. Uh, well, no, actually running away like, please let me go. Uh, and then now I'm going to make my record there. So I ended up um, last minute, it was like early January, we were, were not supposed to start the record till March, but Patrick had a cancellation of a project. So I get this phone call like you're, mo you're going to Los Angeles in like three days. It was something like that, two or three days, four days tops. So I pack up everything and I go to Los Angeles and we start the record uh, in the valley in Burbank originally we were going to record at Capitol Records but it was not available so at the last minute we had our studio pulled out from under us I was really excited to record at Capitol Records Hollywood and Vine like you know it's just iconic but we ended up at the at a studio called Glenwood Place in Burbank California which was fantastic and everyone was fantastic and I had a wonderful time the whole time so I remember that first day we actually have some footage from the first day in the studio uh, there's a lot more than ended up in the documentary but it, we oh so let me back up so first, I'm in Los Angeles, I fly there, I'm in a, a suite, um, which wasn't as glamorous as it sounds, I just needed a kitchen. I'm feeling like I told all this already, so I'm going to go back and check, maybe I'll have to edit some of this out, <laughs> but if not, I don't know, I'm kind of out of it today. Um, oh, and I'm a day late with the podcast this week, my apologies. I hurt my shoulder on Wednesday and I just haven't been in a space because uh, I'm in a lot of pain. We start pre-production, so we did all the pre-production at Pat Leonard's house, which kind of blew my mind because every day I was getting in my car and I was driving into the Hollywood Hills to Patrick Leonard's house and spending all day in his home studio working out what each, what songs are we going to choose and which, you know, how we were going to start putting them together. I have lots of CDs of like pre-production and it was just very crude, but we had to, you know, spend a few weeks, I think three weeks getting ready to actually hit the studio because once you're in the studio, it's extremely expensive. The studio itself was $2,000 a day. Uh, I had two engineers that both made $1,000 a day, not including Kevin Killen, who I did get. I pressured Sony I said we have to, f to put the money in for Kevin I just really really want to work with Kevin he's fantastic so they they did go for it because Pat had worked with Kevin a lot too so Pat was on board and once Pat was on board Sony was on board so I was excited to work with Kevin and for good reason it turns out because he became my compass during that record he was someone I could really trust to tell me the truth and to be objective and I would like do a vocal and he would say, hey, I think it's great, but I don't think you're going to be happy with it long run. So do it again. And I would. And I trusted him. Pat was a little more moody. I really liked working with Pat, but there were days that were harder than others. And there were days where it was really a struggle. And there were times that he did things that I didn't like and that I thought were disrespectful. But for the most part, he and I got along really, really well. But my relationship with Kevin just had a different, a different dynamic to it. There again, if he felt more like a partner, whereas sometimes Pat 
put his boss cap on, which is fine. And he wasn't really like my boss, but you know, he was producing, uh, where Kevin was engineering and mixing. And so he, and I just, I don't know, we, we, we had a closeness that was very organic. Uh, and I did with Pat too, but they were just different. My relationships with them were both different. And I spent a lot of time with them because I was in the studio 16 hours a day on average, six days a week. The only day off I had was Sunday. And I always famously joke that I never knew what to do with myself on Sundays. You would think, six days a week you'd be just exhausted and I was but on Sundays I just kind of missed everybody because that was my family at that point I was just working 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 go back to the hotel have a couple of drinks go to sleep that was it you know basically every day uh, and some artists don't do that it was actually pointed out quite a bit how present I was because I got there when the engineers got there and I left when they went home I didn't just show up when it was time to do my part and leave I wanted to be involved in every part of the process and as someone who was a leader of that team I wanted to be supportive so I stayed I also stayed because I just really enjoyed the conversation again I was working with people who have worked with these legendary artists and I got to just hang out with them and get to know them and talk about our lives and talk about music and talk about the industry and so they became really close to me my nickname by the end was mama hen because one day the lunch order went out and a couple people had been missed because they were off doing something at the time and so they didn't have any food so I had to have someone go out and get them food and from that day on I walked all over that studio space into every nook and cranny being like it's did everybody get their lunch order did everybody get their dinner ordered because I just I, I couldn't I just felt so terrible that somebody wouldn't have their food so my nickname became mama hen because I was always running around making sure everybody had what they needed which again is not normal apparently for a lot of artists I've learned a lot from artists that I've known and I try to be that artist as well to really treat people with respect not to let my moods determine how I treat people I think because I'm from the Midwest and I was a server for a long time which is customer service obviously I've learned how to keep my emotions you know for the most part at bay and, and do the job I'm there to do I mean I think it's professional I don't yell at people I don't throw fits I you know I might do that at home in my home studio but I don't do that in a professional environment I just don't think one it's not who I am so we'll start with that. But two, I just don't think that's professional. I don't think there's any level of fame or any level of being a creative person that gives you the right to slam on other people. And I think that gets over-dramatized that because you're creative, you can throw fits. I don't, it doesn't make me any more creative to throw fits. If I need to process my emotions, I'll do that alone with friends on the phone. I will write a song. I'll play the piano. I will channel that in a different way than yelling at my staff. I just, I don't get it. I've seen it. I've seen it a lot. Um, but artists that I respect don't do that. So for the most part, I mean, everybody, if you're on tour, you're probably going to have a moment in soundcheck where you might go off. That's a stressful environment when you're touring. So, I mean, things happen. And I'm sure I've had a few moments if I really think back, but not many. So I'm recording. I'm loving it. It's like dream come true to be in the studio. Um, I'm working with these amazing musicians. One of my drummers is Paul McCartney's drummer to this day. Also, my bass player uh, is Paul Bushnell. He uh, tours with, um, what's her name? I can't believe I'm drawing a blank. Tim McGraw and Faith Hill. So he's in Faith Hill's band and he has worked also, he played bass on Harbinger, Paul Cole. He's played bass on so many things. He's also Irish like Kevin Killen. Uh, and so I loved hanging out with my Irish guys through the, I'm also 30% Irish. So I really enjoyed being around them. 
and all the musicians i mean they were just great tim pierce played guitars he played on like a prayer album he has played on belinda carlisle so many so many so many big artists so i'm hanging out with these people that are just legendary i'm just like soaking it up i'm loving every day i'm every minute for the most part just really excited just enjoying it the level of artistry and to be playing with people like that and then to, you know this to be singing my vocals i use the same microphone that madonna used on like a prayer just little things and i was just again so excited about it so we tracked sessions for four weeks i think to track everything we did all the lead vocals at the very end which i don't know if i would do that that way again ever in a professional setting like that where it's so costly because my voice was tired i'm singing lead vocals every day for like four days all day long. I'm just like, what were we thinking? Good thing I had had all my training, my classical training, because it certainly came into play when I had to sing for that long. Endurance is a thing you have to learn to do. And a lot of singers who blow out their voices, it's because they don't they don't have the training to know how to properly pace yourself. Um, so, and I'm not saying that in any sort of like pretentious way. It's just, it is what it is. If you don't know how to properly care for your voice, you, you know, you might have some consequences long term. I certainly have lots of physical consequences because I get too tense when I play the piano. So I've had my share of things that I just wasn't properly trained to do or just aren't very good at doing. So we tracked for four weeks, then we started mixing uh, and we mixed the record. But it was just really exciting and Pat really, he made it an environment, uh, even just physically, like he bought all sorts of like floor lamps and rugs and blankets and things so that we could just be really cozy and not have all the overhead lighting on all the time. And we would dim the lights and light candles. And like, I remember when I sang the vocal for the Dead Sea, he wanted it to be very like flat. If you listen to the difference from the Dead Sea on the Winter Children to Standing at the Edge, that's all Pat. I prefer the Winter Children version. I don't dislike the other version, but you'll hear my voice. It's almost like I'm dead. Like that's what he wanted, the Dead Sea. I get it, you know, the symbolism. But uh, he had me actually for that vocal sit down in a chair and drink red wine so that I would just be super mellow and not be standing in front of a mic with lights on me. We had just some candles burning and I was, you know, listening to that really kind of bossa nova, like very lilty, breezy track and singing my, the vocal. Um, just lots of moments like that that I remember. I remember lots of moments of like Pat and I playing around with keyboard sounds. But I have to say the biggest, most exciting moment and the biggest accomplishment in some ways of my career was the fact that I got to arrange the strings and then be there on the day that the orchestra was performing the string arrangements. Sony did not want me to do the string arrangements. They didn't think I had enough experience. Little did they know how much composing experience I have had uh, and how many things I have done. And I love stringed instruments. I play the violin and the viola and the cello. So I know my way around a string orchestra. I had been in orchestra my whole life. Um, it's a funny story. When I was a kid, I was six years old and I put my hand through a window. Well, that's not the funny part. And I had to get stitches. And so I was so brave, quote unquote, getting my stitches um, that my dad said I could have any record that I wanted. He would take me to the record store and I could get whatever record I wanted. And what I chose was the soundtrack from E.T., not the music soundtrack, the score, the orchestral score. Like that's what my six-year-old self wanted because I had seen E.T. in the theater like five times and I thought this the orchestra was so beautiful. To this day, I love film scores. So we finally, like I had to really, really fight to arrange the strings myself, but I did prevail. I picked my battles a lot during that time. I only fought for things I really believed in. Um, so 
I got to do the string arrangements, which I did. And then Susie Katayama came in to conduct, and she also did all like the 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 uh, dynamic markings and stuff in my score because I had scored it all on a computer, and then she decided what what the dynamic should be, which was fine. So she assisted me. It's called uh, the arranger's assistant, arrangement assistant. So she made it all pretty, and then we had these like bound leather versions of them, which I have somewhere in a box. Um, but that day was the most expensive day of my recording life. I think I think it cost thirty something thousand dollars for four and a half hours to have twenty two string players. And eventually, Bloom happened. So let's talk about this. We had this piano vocal on the Bosendorfer that I had gotten um, from an endorsement I had with Bosendorfer because, of course, Tori Amos played them, and I think they're the best pianos in the world. At least they were until Yamaha bought them. But I'm still there. I'm sure they're still great. Uh, I got one given to us. All we had to pay was the transportation. So it was $900 to have a nine-foot grand, grand piano in the studio. And we had a second one that we used more, actually, because it was digital, so we could re-record my parts. So I could play live with the band and sing a, what's called a scratch vocal, like a fake vocal that you replace later. And then we could re-record the piano without me singing in the room so there wouldn't be what's called bleed. Because the piano, of course, is mic'd. And if you're singing... You're, it's going to pick up some of that. So anyway, we had recorded on the Busendorfer because that was song was going to be piano vocal live. So we recorded a version where that was my final vocal and the final piano part. And I cannot find it. I have it on a CD somewhere. I know I do, but I have not been able to find it in like 15 years. But it, somewhere it exists, a piano vocal version of Bloom that we were going to have the strings play to. And we did that, but something just wasn't feeling right about it. We didn't know what it was. So then we decided that we would have me play the piano live with the orchestra because maybe it was just that we were trying to use a pre-recorded piano vocal and it was just not intimate enough. So I was excited because now not only do I have a string orchestra on my album that I arranged myself, I get to play and sing live with them. Okay, I'm on board. So they put me in a separate room, again, for bleed reasons. So I was mic'd on the piano. We had candles lit. This part is in the documentary. You see some of it. Um, you don't see me. I don't think you see the piano vocal parts, but you see that I'm in a room with some candles and there's a piano in there with me. So we did a few takes live with me playing, still playing the piano and the orchestra. And still, mm, we were just weren't happy. Pat wasn't happy with it. So he said, hey, try it just singing with the orchestra, no piano. So we moved the mic so I could be standing and I could see Susie conducting and she could see me. And we recorded the version that became the Stand at the Edge version of Bloom, which is one of my favorite things I've ever done. The string arrangements make me cry, especially if I hear the instrumental version. Uh, but that moment when I go into the, I don't want to bloom without you. And then even halfway through there, you get that like deep, B flat in the basses and it just like all of a sudden it gets larger like the strings the whole time and they're getting larger and larger and larger if you listen to it it starts with a very small ensemble and then it adds as, as the song builds and I just think it's one of the most fulfilling things I've ever done it was a moment the conductor was crying Pat was crying I walked into the control room and Michael Perfit which was our first engineer who I also grew very very close to he said you just broke my heart I'll never forget him saying that to me. Ooh, I'm getting emotional just talking about it. So it was just a moment. And then Pat Leonard said to me, like, you might as well have been Led Zeppelin right there because what you just did has not been done. 
and I don't know if that's true. I mean, obviously, lots of people have sang with an orchestra, but there was something magical, and I think it translates. People love that song so much, and it's taken on a life of its own because modern dancers use it a lot. It's if you go, like go on YouTube, there are people all over the world who have danced to Bloom and my song "You Move Away" from Divide, and that's just mind blowing. Like they're my top two songs on Spotify. They're my top two downloads on iTunes and or like purchases they're probably my top two in apple music too i'd have to look but it's amazing to see my work be used in another medium like that and to see how people interpret the song in dance and it's just really something it really has taken on a life of its own it means a lot to me it means a lot to a lot of people that song so it's definitely the highlight and I remember my mom and my stepdad came for a week and I remember being in my rental car and playing them the original mix of Bloom and just how excited I was about it. I just wanted to run to the hilltops of the Hollywood Hills and have everyone listen to Bloom. So that was definitely the highlight. And then at the end of the record, I just remember Pat and I putting it together, the sequence, which didn't end up being the final sequence because Sony vetoed it and made it shorter. We had all these interludes and things originally that Sony got rid of. Um, there is, I do have some CD copies of the original uh, sequence to Stand at the Edge. Maybe I'll throw some of those on YouTube because they used to be downloadable from my website. Some of you probably have them, but uh, my website no longer has that feature. Uh, and then we had a song called Wounded that we recorded for Stand at the Edge that never made it um, because Sony wanted the album to be shorter. And the, this is the biggest irony of my career. The original sequence with the interludes, Sony Classical told me was too artistic. Okay. Too artistic, I guess, for a classical label. Hmm. Interesting. That ended up being sort of a blessing and a curse. Because I was with Sony Classical, I had a lot more leeway. Not, I didn't have as much pressure to make a pop record, even though, ironically, NPR's All Things Considered and The Ellen Show and David Letterman all turned me down because the album was too pop. <laughs> so, what do you know? Uh, you know, it was an interesting time. So, let me check where I am in my time, BRB. So I'm going to wrap this up, and then maybe next week I'll talk more about what happened after we recorded and I, when I came back to New York. I actually went back to Michigan for a week first to be around my family because I knew I just needed to decompress. Actually, that's not true. Before I went back to Michigan, Pat got me a three-night stay at this resort in Palm Springs. Not really. It's like a retreat kind of place where these, like you stay in a cabin and there are hot springs and pools and mud baths and all these things called two bunch palms so i spent three nights in palm springs being pampered he gave that to me he also bought me an ipod he he was a good guy um again temperamental but lots of artists are um but really i mean to be able to work with a producer like patrick leonard who most famously worked with madonna but has worked with elton john duncan chic roger waters jewel um just the fact that i am on his list of credits and that he's in mine uh it's something and i will never forget it i treasure the experience it was one of the most exciting times of my life to be making a major label album for four hundred and twenty-five thousand dollars. although we actually ended up spending four hundred and thirty-three thousand dollars, and because the industry was just starting to feel the crunch of downloading they made me pay that back out of my advance out of my publishing i couldn't believe it it's illegal to do that out of your publishing but they did it 
Uh, and nobody was worried about going over budget because Pat Leonard came from the 80s and it was just like you went over budget. Who cares? The grand heyday, especially when CDs first came out and the industry got a boom because people were rebuying things on CD that they used to own on cassette or vinyl or 8-track. So there was this false sense of like, we have so much money. I, Pat Leonard told me on one record he worked on, the artist bought himself a car and put it on the album budget and nobody even blinked an eye. I won't say who. I, you know, can't kiss and tell too much in this business. I already say way more than I should. So next week, we'll talk more about what happened afterward and then the life that Stanley Thea just had. And the reason I'm talking about that record is not only because the podcast is named that, but of course, it's my Sony album. It's my most popular album. It's sold more than anything else I've ever done. And it tends to be people's favorite, which I totally get. And so, because this season has been about identity... Standing at the Edge is a huge part of my identity. It's the work I did as a major label recording artist on a giant corporate label. I mean, I'll always be proud of that. I mean, that record came out in Japan with, with an extra little thing in the liner notes that had all the lyrics in Japanese. I have a copy of it. I mean, to think that people in Japan were, were buying the record. It's the reason today that when I get my monthly Spotify report, it's people all over the world. It's the reason why when I get my iTunes payments, they come from all over the world. So I will always be grateful for that because I did have the machinery behind me enough to be definitely way under the radar, but have my music heard all over the world. And that never would have happened if I hadn't gotten signed. I, will, I don't regret that it happened, but a lot went wrong after Stand at the Edge was done. So we'll talk about that next time. But it is a huge part of my identity, and I will never forget it. And I know how much people people love that record, and I have a soft spot for it too, because it's just, that's something I did. That's an accomplishment. I've lived my life in a big way, and that was one of the biggest things I ever did. So I'm very grateful to it. I'm grateful for you, because you're probably here because of that. Not everybody, but a lot of people. So again, stay safe. Stay well in these times of COVID. Things are getting crazy. I will say I'm super, super excited to see Kamala Harris get the VP nomination. I'm not going to say that any of those people were my first choices. That's okay. But to see an African-American woman, an eight, well, actually a black woman. She does not identify as African-American because her father's from Jamaica, which there's a lot of controversy about that. But she's a black, first black woman and the first Asian-American woman to be on a major ticket. So huge, huge deal. And only the fourth woman ever to be on a presidential ticket in the United States. And it's 2020. We got to get it together. We got to do better. So I'm, I'm, that's giving me a little bit of hope in a time that I haven't felt hopeful. You all give me hope. The fact that I have a, any kind of platform at all to say anything and anybody listens, I really appreciate it. I'll see you next time. Again, stay safe. Bye-bye.